Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and this is a special episode dedicated to the drama of a by-election. We are gathered here today to discuss the fallout of the vote in Rutherglen, frankly the longest, most arduous and most foregone conclusion of a vote since the dawn of time. I actually feel like I've been awake since October 2020, three years just to get to this result. To recap, the SNP had won it in 2019 with Margaret Ferrier. She held the seat previously before uh, in, in 2015 to 2017. In 2020, she frankly lost her mind and broke COVID rules, testing positive, then going on a train journey from London back home. All hell broke loose. Nicola Sturgeon got angry and then everyone forgot about it for a wee while. Then a recall petition was triggered via Westminster's new rules. More than 10% of the good people of Rutherglen and Hamilton West signed that. And here we are. Historically, this has been solid Labour. And here we are again. In the end, the Labour romped it with 17,800-odd votes. The SNP fell quite far back to 8,399. The Conservatives were on just over a 1,000 and lost their deposit, which is a dreadful result for them. The Lib Dems and the Greens were far behind, 895 and 601 votes, respectively. So Labour have a majority now of about 9,500 in this seat, which is pretty comfortable. To digest all of this and look at what next for the winners and losers, I have with me my crack panel of colleagues, Derek Healy and Justin Bowie. So Derek, let's um, let's start with the winners. I think that would be the right thing to do. This is a, a very good result for Keir Starmer. It is. It's an extremely good result. I mean, I'm always a little bit loath to read too much into by-election results. Um, I always think it should be taken with a little bit of caution that this is suddenly going to be this big signal for exactly what's going to happen at future elections. But it's a significant result. It really, really is. And what's quite been quite interesting coming off the back of it is you're starting to hear about Labour insider, Labour activists talking about, OK, this is exactly where we wanted to be. And it bodes very, very well for future elections, funnily enough. Um, we're already seeing some of that kind of chat. So I think it doesn't necessarily tell us exactly where we're going to be, but it, it was an important milestone, I think, in, in Labour doing well at the next election. This, if they're going to cut through with the voters, it had to be in here. So I think there'll be a lot of people very, very happy in the party at the moment. It's interesting as well because we're we're very tempted to look at these things in, in, in a Scottish dimension we, we tend to look at elections as if they belong only in this part of the UK of course anyone watching this in the rest of the UK will be just thinking of what this might mean for the next government and in England in particular this is you know Labour are, are on on the march there the SNP obviously don't stand in any English seats so it's a completely different dimension but they'll see this south of the border as a as a proper sign that the Conservative government's on the way out and the Labour government's on the way in I mean do you think that the the subtleties of of what might be happening in Scotland get lost in the mix there? Will it translate to something that's a bit more UK wide? I thought it was quite interesting to hear about um, Michael Shanks, the candidate. They are talking about um, the impact this could have on on the next election, and that this could, you know, this could be the first step in winning a big big group of Scottish seats. And that's the that's the way to kind of get a Labour government, and that's very much the way he was framing this. And I think. That's the context that people, I think, south of the border will, will look at this and say, well, okay, it looks like something's definitely happening in Scotland and that would help a lot when it comes to getting Keir Starmer into Downing Street. Um, so I think it will be seen as a big moment, definitely. It's, it's okay saying this is Labour's victory and they're back, but 
like we're just talking about here, Scotland doesn't quite work like that. It never really has. I mean, if we trot around the map a little bit, um, Justin, you and I have talked about this at length and written about it a lot. The Northeast first, so Aberdeen, Aberdeenshire, that's a that's a Tory SNP fight. And the, and the map's being redrawn there. The Tories might even gain something on a good day, uh, even if Labour, you know, wipe the floor with everybody else everywhere else. Uh, I was speaking to a, a former Tory advisor in the Scottish Parliament just on Thursday, and he was adamant that that this is the sort of reverse of the yes vote coalescing behind the SNP. There was a valiant attempt at spin, I'm sure, but the depressed Tory vote um, is apparently something to be celebrated um, by them as well. Yeah, I mean, Scotland definitely has some unique political dynamics in that sense, and we have seen this to a degree in previous elections. In the 2021 Holyrood election, there was a sense that, you know, some seats the SNP weren't able to gain were very much coalescing around the main unionist party in that area. And, and that does seem like the trend that's going to continue at the next Westminster election. This election, you know, the Labour vote was the vast, vast majority of the unionist vote, which it often is in this area anyway. But I think the sheer extent to which the Conservatives and Lib Dems were unable to break through shows that those who are sort of tired of the SNP, those who just really, really want change, are almost happy to sort of hold their nose and just back the Unionist Party no matter what. I think a key part of that will be that whereas Jeremy Corbyn was perhaps seen as very divisive to non-Labour voters, Keir Starmer is perhaps seen as a, a less controversial figure. He's seen as more of a sort of unity figure across the UK to people who want the Conservatives out and who are then happy to coalesce around Labour so yeah, that result, I mean, it's worry for the, worrying for the SNP anyway because of the scale of the defeat. But if, if I was in the SNP, I'd also be very worried that even in seats where they might be quite strong and where their vote might hold up, there is going to be a real drive to kind of vote for the Unionist Party among those Unionist voters. And that really could have devastating consequences for the SNP in marginal seats. I think it's always quite interesting with by-elections though because, I mean, you have really low voter turnouts. So I think what you tend to see is almost kind of insight into what party is energised at the moment. So I think you've got the SNP, who obviously have a new leader in Hamza Yousaf. This is seen as a kind of first big test for him, but actually, is this a case of SNP voters just staying at home because they haven't quite made up their mind yet on, on Hamza and whether they want to go and give them their vote? We've seen um, some kind of Tory insiders, Tory MSPs, talking um, about how they are not delighted with the way things are going under Douglas Ross, and there's been a little bit of kind of chat in that direction as well. So I think what this definitely does give you an insight into is that Labour, would-be Labour voters seem to be more energised at the moment. I think that's what we can definitely see coming off the back of this. But it'll be very interesting to see how that translates next year into a full election and whether actually these sort of hints and, and insights actually translate into big, big wins across the country. Yeah. Well, as we're we're talking about Labour here being the winners, obviously, in a contest, there has to be a loser. And even though the Conservatives clearly um, did badly here, it, it, it was an SNP seat to start with. Um, and it's it's a bit of a bloody nose for, for, for the party, to be honest. Um, it's too soon to be talking about this being a really, you know, it's just, Hamza's not going to get, get his jotters or anything on this one. But it's, it's a, it's a, it's a worrying sign for Hamza Yousaf, surely, Justin. Absolutely. I think going into this election, the SNP knew that victory was unlikely. Despite previously holding the seat, there was likely to be that effect of, you know, a, a by-election where the opposition party get a bit of a boost. 
all all the things that had gone on with Margaret Ferrier, as you alluded to, perhaps you know, didn't mean that local voters were that infused in favour of the SNP. But I think it's the scale of that defeat. If the SNP had lost last night by, say, 5% or 10%, they could argue, look, it was always quite a marginal seat. It was going to be a tough one to hold on to. That shows that the SNP vote is kind of enduring. But a defeat in this scale, in a seat that the SNP have held, really just feels quite unprecedented in recent years. And even at the election next year, once that by-election effect is no longer in play, when the turnout is larger, you know, the SNP may be, may be able to claw back some of that vote. But it seems incredibly unlikely they'll be able to make a tilt at even taking back that seat. And that is extremely worrying because when you think when the SNP have been at their strongest, they're almost able to make a good go at nearly every single Scottish seat, even the ones they've not won, they've sometimes come close to winning. But this kind of shows there's going to be a lot of seats next year that the SNP are unlikely to really even make a strong tilt at. And th that is worrying because that's not been the case since 2010 in a Westminster election. The um, the independence dynamic is is always interesting because Hamza Yousaf has obviously made it very clear to every voter who's paying attention that the next election is about independence. So has has that been the is this now the template? So the the unionist vote will just pick the best placed unionist candidate to stand against them. I mean, I just don't know how the SNP can necessarily continue on that tack because clearly their vote is not holding up. So does it? And support for independence isn't necessarily entirely falling away. But if you look at the dynamics of an election, if the SNP make that election about independence and lose votes compared to the previous election, it doesn't necessarily bode well in that strategy. And I've definitely seen you know some chat this morning on social media from SNP activists arguing that whether the problem is the actual specific independence strategy, whether whether the problem is making the election so about independence, clearly something is not working. And if the SNP go into an election and say we need to win, say, the majority of seats to then continue with our strategy of independence, if they lose a lot of those seats, it's just not going to wash with voters. So I think that focus on independence, despite support for independence remaining strong, is clearly not resonating with voters. I think a lot of voters know that a referendum is not coming anytime soon. They know the SNP don't have the backing to just sort of unilaterally sort of declare or pursue independence. So yeah, yeah I just don't really see how that strategy is going to hold up. I'm sure the SNP would completely reject this, but I mean, Labour were on the ground saying that they're the only ones talking about local issues. And obviously then they've had this big, big victory. So I think it'll be very interesting because if you're going into the next election and you are making this argument about it's all about independence, it's not like how it was before we had Boris Johnson, who was seen as like really tied to Brexit, as really unpopular policy in Scotland. It's Rishi Sunak. So you don't have that same fire behind it. So I think going into an election, it does seem like a really big risk. And I wonder if there might be a bit of a rethink about some of that, um, about the, the force of making that argument and whether some other arguments would be strongly put in there as well um, off the back of this. You think then Stephen Flynn, the Aberdeen South MP who leads the SNP group at Westminster, do you think he'll be um, having a bit of a, a long, hard think today about strategy and what to do next? There's going to be some tough talking I'd imagine. I think everyone in the SNP is going to have to do that coming off, coming off the back of this. I mean as you say it's a really bloody nose for them. It is not just a defeat, it's a pretty harsh defeat and it suggests that something's going wrong there um, and again it's it's hard to tell whether it's how much it's about something going very very wrong and how much it's about something going a bit more positively with Labour 
but definitely there's an issue here. So there needs, there needs to be some kind of rethink. So it'll be interesting to see if there's any shift in strategy over the next couple of weeks and months. Um, but yeah, I mean, it seems like something's definitely not right at the moment. I think it would be tempting for some some in the SNP to, to tell themselves a story that this is, this is really all about um, some sort of backlash because of the recall petition, because of what Margaret Ferrier um, did before she lost the SNP whip. And then, of course got um, drummed out of parliament. It's that a uh, dangerous kind of mindset to get stuck in? I mean, just to sort of say, ah, well, this is this is all about what happened in Rutherglen rather than something wider. I mean, I think that, I think there'll be probably an element of that going on. I think there'll be people who are very unhappy with what Margaret Ferrier did. I, I, I would be amazed if the wider public blame the SNP for that. I mean, these, these were the individual actions of an individual MP which were immediately criticised by the SNP. So I, I don't think that's what's going on there. I mean, there, there, will be, there will be an element of that. There will be an element of that. And I'm sure that some people want to play that up as being the reason, but it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel like the big talking point of this by-election was people saying, we're just so furious with Margaret Ferrer, we could never vote SNP again. I haven't really heard anyone saying that. I, I also think that the whole you know, the whole situation with Margaret Ferrier, while it's very different to, you know, the rest of the controversies and dramas we've seen within the SNP, it does feed into a wider narrative of a party decline, a party with representatives that have perhaps taken voters for granted, that have made, you know, daft errors and silly mistakes. So even if there's an element of that Margaret Ferrier effect coming into play for voters, I don't think you can disconnect that entirely from the rest of the problems that the SNP have been facing, to be honest. I mean, this is probably something to do with the first-past-the-post system, but it is remarkable how Scotland just swings one way, then the other. It's basically all or nothing when it comes to the electoral map of Westminster politics in Scotland. People were happy to just vote Labour in droves for decades, and then suddenly they weren't. And, you know, suddenly it's all SNP. So each time this happens, and some, you know there's a swing big enough to wipe out an entire party all over again. It just looks like uh, we can't really make our minds up. <laughs> Is there, are we going back to 2010 now, do you think? Is this pre-referendum politics? Or is that just never going to, that genie's out of the bottle, it's never getting plugged back in? I don't think it's necessarily going to be the same as pre-2010. I think there are certain areas where you know, the SNP had about six MPs, give or take, around that time. I don't think we're going to see the SNP fall to that level. I think they're going to sort of retain support in some of those proper strongholds that they've built up. It's just they're going to have to fight for those seats, whereas they could perhaps take them for granted. And, you know, they're not going to dominate the map in the same way they did before. So that central belt, sort of west of Scotland, Glasgow area, is going to look a lot more labour. You're going to see those uh, northeast patches that they were competitive in, perhaps remaining conservative. But I think there would definitely be patches of the country where the SNP remain much stronger than they did, say, perhaps you know pre-2010. Yeah, I, th I think it's way too early to be saying, are we going back to Labour Scotland at the moment? Um, I think what it, as Justin says, I think what it means is that the next election is going to be fascinating and you're going to have all these different seats where... Previously, it kind of felt like there was, you know, paper candidates and people being put up and stuff like that. I think almost every seat is is one to fight for now, one to play for, um, and that's not been the case recently. So it's going to be absolutely fa fascinating, um, and yeah, it's going to be very, very exciting. I think for us. Well, we still don't have a date in the diary for this, but um, it's, it's going to be soon. Um, and talking about the people who need to front up and just take that one, it's the Conservatives. So in this by-election. They, they were they were gubbed. They lost their deposit. 
they couldn't get enough votes to even get their 500 quid back. They put in a very brave face on it saying, well, this was going to happen because it's a two-horse race, but forget that because you look elsewhere on the map where Labour aren't particularly at the races, Aberdeenshire, um, for example, the Conservatives are in a fight with the SNP. So do they go on to benefit from that tactical voting? I think they will definitely benefit from that tactical voting in the North East and perhaps, you know, in the South of Scotland as well, where they're quite strong. So they actually, you know, have a strong chance of holding on to those seats. The problem is it seems like the only seats they're actually likely to perhaps improve on across the UK. I mean, I can't think of a single other seat across the UK where the Conservative vote is likely to go up at the next election. And even in those North East seats, it shows that they have a tough battle on their hands. And I wonder if you could almost end up seeing a little bit of, if the SNP start to think Labour are making a bit of a comeback, if they start to think that some of these West of Scotland central belt seats are kind of lost, I wonder if they almost start pouring more resources into giving the Tories a, a bit of a bloody nose in the North East. And that, that's easier said than done. They would have to fight for those seats and key topics like oil and gas that they've been very mixed on you know they might struggle to get a consistent message across on that it doesn't necessarily bode entirely well for the Tories they may hold on to those seats but you know elsewhere in the UK it could really be a bit of a disastrous election for them it's worth pointing out this seat as well I mean they put up T Thomas Kerr who is a rising star in the party is very well regarded so I don't know if it was necessarily the case that they always thought they were going to take an absolute battering. I think, I mean, they probably didn't think they could win it, but I think they would have been hoping to do better than they've done. So it's also an absolutely disastrous result for them. And it doesn't it doesn't bode well for things coming down the line. Yeah, and if you take it in the Scottish context again, we're looking at the, um, the end of a week where the headlines coming out of Conservative Party conference before we, you know, in the days before this podcast was recorded, the headlines were absolutely bananas. I mean, Justin, take us through a little bit of the, the highlights and lowlights of what the Conservatives have been getting up to in, in, in the past week. Well, yeah, it was a very illuminating conference. There was um, footage of former Home Secretary Priti Patel and Nigel Farage singing karaoke. Uh, Home Secretary Suella Braverman accidentally stood on a guide dog. Um, <laughs> there was some really, really bizarre speeches. Uh, Penny Morgent came in for a bit of ridicule over a bit? bizarre speech. I mean, a lot of ridicule over telling members to stand up and fight. And so much of it just seemed like a bizarre spectacle. And then you get on to the Prime Minister's speech where he champions himself as somebody fighting for long-term change. And yet, you know, he's, he's cancelling a rail project for the long term. He then decides he's going to launch this network north to sort of improve rail services in the north of England. In the past day, we've seen one of those potential services already being mooted by the party. Some of the services that were announced actually already exist in Manchester. And that's before we get to the fact that he announces the cancellation of the high-speed rail project to Manchester while in Manchester. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was an endless parade of things that just, to be honest, seemed quite baffling and, you know, bad messaging, bad communications. And clearly, you know, Scotland works differently to the rest of the UK, but evidently they don't seem to have got any polling bounds from these big announcements around transport and education just seems like sort of a party that's in decay and decline and it's almost moved past that stage of you know a party that's in trouble to a party that just doesn't know how to win back voters and is talking about issues that either voters don't care about 
just it's coming out with the wrong messages about issues that voters do care about and I just don't see what's next for them other than a really really difficult election next year yeah <laughs> a nice little recap that I'd actually forgotten um, in that list about Penny Mordaunt's fantastic rousing speech about standing up and fighting I mean that, that was quite something I tried to forget with Nigel Farage's dad <laughs> yeah we've also got um, cigarettes are getting banned as well in time you know obviously it'll be a very complicated way of doing it by age so yeah, if you're a smoker and you're unhappy with the current state of the UK, you know that things are just about to get even worse. I suppose. <laughs> well, you no, know, you're all right if you are a smoker because true, true. Um, Sorry, it's yeah. just the people who can't smoke now. If this is a bit of a cul-de-sac here, if you want to become a smoker, <laughs> then if your ambition is to become a smoker, um, but yeah, there is a strange thing. I was thinking about this. Uh, like you could be 51, <laughs> going into shop and buying cigarettes legally, but your 50-year-old pal getting ID'd because he's not allowed them. Quite like that idea. Anyway, um, that was a bit of a cul-de-sac there, talking of cul-de-sacs. It's all about transport, isn't it, with the with the um, the Conservatives. But that HS2 decision really felt to me like uh, a governing party kind of scuttling the ship just so that Labour had no chance of taking it on when they, when they inevitably get into power, assuming these polls are all correct and the by-election is a, is a, a straw in the wind. Um, it didn't go as far north as um, Manchester. Well, it's not going to. But it was. Do you remember? Cast your I um, your mind back. This was going to start in Edinburgh and Glasgow. There was going to be knock-on impacts for Scotland. Hamza Yousaf at First Minister's questions yesterday uh, mentioned that as well. You know, these decisions have an uh, impact on our economy uh, across the whole of the UK. Even if we're now just talking about a high-speed line from London to Birmingham. I mean, do you think that they've just got a focus group who's saying just just get rid of it, do something disruptive, look like you're on top of something? Make a huge wave, and you know your unannouncements will look like leadership. Is that what's going on here? Do you know what I think it is? I think it's like a a reshuffling of things to go into the election. So I think it's them saying, "Okay, if we carry on as we are right now, things are going to go very, very badly for us. So what can we do to reorganise things a little bit?" And again, it's 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 you can see why some people in the Scottish Tories want to split away from the Westminster Party because it seems like. Every time an election is coming up, there's some chaos going into Westminster that they need to answer for. Um, so I think to some extent, this has been, you know, what's what's going to get voters out of their house and what's been going on recently and, and Hamilton, Rutherland, Wesley, what's what's going to get them out and go to the polls? It's not going to happen. Um, we saw this with some of the kind of climate crisis stuff and we've seen it now with HS2. This, this seems to be like, get rid of that policy and use that money to do big spending projects. We're going to do all this exciting stuff. We're going to do these, I mean, they're talking about kind of a transport link with Europe, for a rail bridge and all this kind of stuff. You know, these big, big grandiose ideas going into an election. Um, I think that's what it's about more than anything else. It's just trying to capture voters' imaginations in some kind of way. And this is how they're trying to do it. And unfortunately for Douglas Ross and his pals in Scotland, it's not going very well. Um, for them at this election. We've talked about the big three parties, um, the, the incumbents and then the winners and the governing UK party as well. Of course, there were there was a massive long list of um, candidates in this particular election, some getting six votes, you know, some getting a handful. The Lib Dems and the Greens, um, they weren't going to do anything at this one, you know, and they got, you know, they'll move on. It was The Greens had never stood there, I don't think, before. So it was a good test for them. They did get a good few hundred votes in it. But right at the start of this conversation, we talked about the turnout pretty low, 37%. That's half that, roughly, that it was in the 2019 snap election. There was one person, though, who was not on the ballot, but we really did think he was going to be on the ballot because he promised he would be. Derek, let's remind 
our loyal listeners of um, the life and times of George Galloway. Well, yeah, so George Galloway uh, launched a fundraiser to fight for fight for the seat when um, Margaret Ferrier's rule breaking was first revealed. Um, so he raised more than twelve thousand pounds from more than 400 supporters over 45 days. This is back in late 2020. And he, at the time, vowed uh, this train, which has left the station, is going all the way to victory. But of course, he's currently, I believe, working abroad and and didn't bother to contest the seat at all. Um, So he did say at the time that any money that wasn't going to be spent would be used to contest the the upcoming Holyrood election um, the following year. That's, That's what he did. This is uh, All for Unity, which was the the party, the short-lived party that he set up. And according to Electoral Commission receipts, if that full £12,000 was spent on that election, 2021 Scottish Parliament election, that would be more than 40% of the money spent by that party. Um, obviously, for a crowdfunder for an election, George Galloway didn't even take part in. So, a pretty bizarre situation, all in all. Okay, well, um, tradition dictates that we hand out a, a special prize now. You'd think that that might go to the Tories, but I reckon this has been a three-year waking nightmare of a campaign and it's finally over. But I think that um, for for saying he'd stand and then not standing and and leaving us all talking about it for too long, George Galloway is the uh, campaign stoosh of the week. Stoosh of the week. And that's it. That's all we've got time for this week for our special run through of the winners and losers in the Rutherglen and Halton West election. We'll be back next week for a good look at the SNP's upcoming conference in Aberdeen and there will be a lot to talk about there, especially off the back of this result and the fact that uh, Nicola Sturgeon had said we should be preparing for IndyRef2 on October the 19th. How times have changed. So, until then and while the world continues to do crazy things pick up a paper or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, The Sunday Post and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed.